Hey everyone, welcome to the McNuttiest Dimension. I'm Chris McNutt, I'm glad you could take some time, hang out, check out some shit from the Consciousness Salon, a seat, your very own seat in the Consciousness Salon. We have nothing to do except expand our perspective check things out from a new angle because the more perspective it's only perspective people there is no truth it's just perspective yes we get locked into our own truth we like things to be predictable we like things to be quote unquote normal we don't want to wake up every morning in a whole new reality that we want to figure out that would be a pain in the ass some days would be like oh freaking cool, man. My plants are growing out of the ceiling. But most days would just be like, I'm just trying to get my shit done. And my plants are growing out of the ceiling today. And my car is actually, you know, a leopard or something like that. Who knows? Like if reality was that liquid for us, anyways, the humans, it's traumatic enough down here. Apparently there's realms out there. There's realities out there that are that liquid. We can go have that experience when we go and be a life form in that dimension, in that realm. But ours, we like predictability. We like some stability. So that's cool. But perspective, people, that's what we need. We need to expand the network. Sometimes you've got to just go for a walk in the forest. Go for a walk in the forest. Get out of the city. Go look for some mushrooms. It's fall time, people. The mushrooms of all descriptions are popping up. I don't know where you live, but the woods around my place, man, it is like just downtown Mushroom City. And turns out, I found out, like, full disclosure here, I'm not super rooted to this earth plane, duh. You might have figured that out by now. I'm a, you know, upper chakra kind of guy. I sometimes think I barely got my toenails. I'm hanging on by my toenails down here in the practical three-dimensional world. I want to get up into the world of ideas and consciousness. Whoa, man, thinking about shit and talking about stuff. I'm there. I'm really good at a dinner party, but don't maybe call me up if you need me to help you fix your car or do something practical. Um, I Sometimes I'm just hanging on by my toenails here, and that includes my connection with the natural world. I try to ground. It's almost like this conscious thing I do. I know I'm so much in that other direction that I go for long walks and focus on my feet chakras and opening them up and just connecting to the earth, and I spend some time out in the forest, and I smell smells, and I feel trees and I sit on the sides of hills and I do my best to connect. Now, if you're wired the other way and you do that, like you're a farmer, you maybe take some time and connect the other way. Get up into your higher chakras. That might be the thing that you need to do for balance. I need, I I know I need to go earthy the other direction. So I'm not super hip to the natural world of like mushrooms. I've always been this like, whoa, the hell are those things are just kind of weird. But recently, damn has my respect for uh, the whole mycelium kingdom. Now I know what it's called. It's the mycelium kingdom because the mushrooms, 
everybody. Newsflash, I'm just figuring this stuff out myself, are just the fruiting body. I like the apples on the tree or the berries, right? So when you see a mushroom sitting there, it's just like the apple. But where's the rest of the damn apple tree, you say? It's underground. It's just this network of little like hair-like spaghetti that just goes through logs and moss and trees and rotted things. And it just lives off all that decomposing stuff. And it uh, connects the forest it's like it's like the neural pathway and kind of like the it helps the consciousness of the forest flow it helps trees communicate with each other it's a bit it's a symbiotic relationship this hidden life of trees check out that book i don't know who it's written by i can't remember the name i was a german forester just spent years in the forest just yeah and it came up with this well wonderful book hidden life of trees and there's lots of other new studies is where things are going understandings that we have this world of like mushrooms how mycelium is it's as i said it's kind of like the consciousness of the force so no doubt duh it kind of has some medicinal effects on our own consciousness now psilocybin magic mushrooms all of that world is super hip. People are microdosing. People are shrooming out. People are doing, you know, it's plant medicine. When I was a kid, it was just, you did some shrooms and you tripped around in the park. Now it's like, no, it's like, it's a spiritual practice, which is great to take it to the next level, a little, a hell of a lot more focused than we had when we were just doing shrooms and ripping around the park for the afternoon. Um, and no doubt leads to greater experiences in understanding. Hallelujah guys fill your boots with that sort of stuff but there's other mushrooms as well that are coming on lion's mane damn check out lion's mane and reishi and these are medicinal mushrooms that help with our nervous system nervine tonics help with brain health the mind all this sort of so there's this interaction with mushrooms and consciousness and stuff like that going on so my guest today on the McNuttiest Dimension is Robert Rogers. He's a retired botanist and herbalist who has practiced for close to 50 years in Canada. He's traveled all over the world. He has written 57 books on the subject of herbal medicine, herbs, mushrooms, and his 58th book is coming out soon that is about the history of psilocybin mushrooms. Maybe you're listening to this now and it's already out on the streets. Please join me in giving a big McNuttiest dimension. Welcome the master herbalist, Robert Rogers. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for taking the time to be here today. You're welcome. And you, how do you self-describe yourself? If I met you at a dinner party, you would say, I am a... 
I am a retired herbal elder of Canada. You say you're retired, but what when you were uh, active professionally, what was your professional description of yourself? Yeah, so my profession, uh, I started off early on, uh, around 50 years ago, um, got a degree in botany from the U of A, and then I went up north and I happened to live between two uh, uh, reserves at the time, and uh, each of them had a one had a male and one a female uh, Cree medicine person. So I started uh, looking at plants around the area there, which I knew nothing about, and uh, that began my journey of finding out, uh, my, uh, you know, kind of pursuing my interest in the medicinal aspects of plants. So that's how it started out, and then I I went around the world. I I spent time in. You know, uh, Alert Bay, British Columbia with Norma Myers way back in the day, then California, then England, then Spain, and then a couple of years in the early 80s, in uh, two years in Peru. And then in 1984, I set up a clinical practice in Edmonton and did that for nearly 20 years. <clears throat> Retired from that to give myself time to do more research and writing. Uh, I've written now 57 books. In fact, my latest one on psilocybin just uh, is going to be released next week. So as somebody who is, you talked about sort of being um, your first education in the plant world was medicinal. So how do you describe that? Like there's lots of different ways to interact with, with plants and their energy. And you sort of describe the medicinal properties. So what does that mean to you? Well, maybe I'll tell you a little uh, story from back in that day, and it might help explain it. Um, there was uh, an indigenous uh, uh, healer, Rose Auger, at the Drift Pile Reserve near where I was living. And so one day I knocked on her door and I said, uh, Rose, would you teach me about, you know, the indigenous use of plant medicine? And she looks right at me and she says, well, maybe. And so... I said, can we start? She said, we'll come back tomorrow. So I went back the next day and she said, I want you to go in the woods. I want you to sit with a plant. And then on the next day, I want you to come and tell me what you found out. And I said to myself, I said, oh, well, easy peasy. I, you know, I, I'm a botanist, you know, for goodness sake. And so I went in the woods and the first plant I saw was a wild sarsaparilla, uh, Aurelia nudicollis, which I believe is up in your part of the world as well. And uh, I sat with it for a while, you know, didn't pay that much attention really and went back the next day and, and told her what I thought. And she looks right at me and she goes, no. So, so I left. And so I went back the next day and I went to the plant and I sat with it and I, I paid a little more attention. I looked, I noted how the, how the rhizome grew, what it smelled like, what it tasted like, how the, it, the stalk went up and divided into three, and then there were three to five leaves on each of the of those divides, and told her all that scientific head stuff, you know, that technocratic kind of approach. And I went back the next day and told her, and she says, no. So then I went home, and I was kind of pissed. And I was kind of, you know, like, well, I don't need her. I don't need to do this, whatever. And uh, so, but I did. I went out a third day. And so I'm... I'm sitting there with the plant. It's about, you know, six feet away from me. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a nice warm 
early fall day and uh, the leaves had just turned yellow on it. And, and so I smoked a little bit of a joint, had a little nap. And then as I'm just kind of sitting back up, this uh, snowshoe hair is over in the corner of my eye. And it looks at me and I'm looking at it and I'm not moving. And it slowly lops along, comes right up to the plant, nibbles on the leaf, looks right at me, and then lops off into the woods. I thought, hmm. So I'd had nothing. So the next morning I went back to Rose and I said, well, Rose, I don't know, but I think it has something to do with rabbits. And she goes, her eyes got big and her smile on her face. And she goes, okay, I'll teach you. And much later, I learned that the Cree name translates uh, into rabbit root. And uh, so that's how my, that's how it started. So it was, uh, you know, coming out of botany. And then there's this understanding that these plants are maybe like beings that are interacting with us on multiple layers. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so then outside of the medicinal qualities of a plant, what's your take on, say, general plant energy and sort of their consciousness? What are they here to do? What's their life journey outside of the interaction with us humans? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think there would be, uh, it's well known there would be no plants on the uh, earth if it was not for the early stages of the algae that, you know, little cyanobacterium floating in the ocean who wanted to somehow get onto land that was, you know, cooling volcanic land. And, and without that, without the symbiosis of those algae who can produce uh, energy from, from solar energy, uh, combining with fungi uh, to form lichens that came onto the solid part of the earth and then started to degrade that rock into soil that allowed plants to start to evolve. And that's kind of all where it started, you know, several, you know, billion years ago. Um, so plants have a mission somehow. They're, they are doing this interaction with the upper layer of the, say, the I don't know what you call it, the earth's crust that was once lava and then they, they helped kind of turn it into soil? Well, they certainly, uh, they've evolved just like we have evolved uh, as humanoids. I mean, uh, there was a evolutionary over hundreds and uh, of millions of years uh, in evolution. And the fungi are much more related to us than than plants. Uh, fungi can't produce their own food. So they needed that communication and that connection. The fungi provided the shelter to prevent the algae from drying out on soil and on the, on the rocks. And uh, the algae provided the lichens, the food. And that has been going on forever. In fact, there is a huge mycelial mat of uh, fungi all over the world underground that have a connection with plants. And it's not so much mm, uh, socialistic as it is a little more capitalist in a sense, <laughs> that, uh, that the plants themselves uh, require nutrients and water, which 
because the fungi mycelium are connected with the mycelium uh, of root hairs of these, all of these plants, um, they uh, can provide those. But what the fungi need are sugar. And th so there is this give and take. The plants provide sugar, the fungi provide nutrients and water, and that kind of goes on. And uh, that particular um, relationship of communication, in fact, it's so intense that, for example, in a group of trees, let us say there's a group of trees and one of the trees is ailing. The mother tree in the area, which is so important why we should be discouraging the present forestry system that we have, uh, that mother tree, the largest one in the area, sends a message of communication to the mycelium to feed extra nutrients to the ailing tree to help it recover. So it is a communication that we can tune into on an auditory level uh, not even visually, really. Well, a little bit visually, but we we it's a, at a frequency we don't understand, but it's going on. Now, just to back up a little bit, you've you mentioned you mentioned plants, and you also mentioned mycelium. So, from your botanist perspective, these are separate life forms, so to speak. You wouldn't say the mycelium is a plant, and you wouldn't- The, mycel uh, the mycelium is the living entity of the fruiting bodies of mushrooms that you see above the earth, right? But you're when considering you it, say, a different species from, say, plants where you would say all the trees and herbs and grasses and kingdom. that sort of thing. They're a totally different kingdom. Yeah, they were- In fact, when I started my- university degree in 68, uh, there were only two kingdoms on the planet, according to scientists, <laughs> uh, plants and animals. Uh, and then uh, fungi were integrated as a new, as its own kingdom in the early 70s, uh, called the fifth kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, that's how recent, really, uh, when you think about it, the fungi have been totally ignored, and yet they are the great communicators. So, when you, the relationship you have with plants, scientific, you, you analyze, say, medicinal properties, scientific properties, but would you say you also have an energetic connection with the plant world and the mycelium world, like to be able to feel it as well as understand the energies? Well, a little bit. I, I wouldn't say I'm an empath, but I have spent enough time and I encourage my students to spend time with plants to, to get an understanding that there's a personality and a spiritual property to, to plants and they're very individual to each species. And uh, in my books, I do write about that. I, I actually talk not just about the traditional uses by indigenous people of boreal plants, but also modern science, like why, what, what chemicals are in there that make it work the way it works, but also tuning into these more subtle vibrations of, of personality and spirituality that I think are critically important to get a full feeling uh, for, for the entities and to appreciate what they have to offer. So... On that energetic sense, say, you know, lack of a better term, call it like sort of the consciousness that, you know, the plant world, the mycelium world is operating on. Do you feel, sense, understand 
a difference there between what mycelium has to offer and what it's doing here in our system of life compared to the plant realm? Well, fungi, uh, the fruiting bodies in the mycelium, that's a different category. Uh, and the plants are also. Uh, with plants, um, I've had a long experience. Uh, I think my first, what I would call a flower essence, that is taking petals from a flower, putting them in a crystal bowl for four hours of uninterrupted sunlight, and then discerning the vibrational benefit that they can confer to to uh to animals including ourselves humans um uh is very interesting and i've been doing that i did i have a line my wife and i have a line called prairie diva flower essences which look at some of the boreal and prairie plants and uh and so that's just been- just to be clear then when you're making an essence um it's not the same as say you're making a plant medicine. You're not making a salve or a tincture right. or right. a tea. Right. You know where that is more trying to access medicinal properties of the plant. The essences are sort of accessing the energetics. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the medicinal plants, whether they're taken as an herbal tea, they're made into an alcohol tincture, and then or pills or whatever, and taken uh, for mainly for physical, but a little bit of, let's, of, uh, I would say, mental and emotional patterns. But the f- essences of both flowers and mushrooms are more for the spiritual side of, of, uh, of uh, helping correct, in, in the case of flower essences, bringing light into areas of dark. That is, you know, uh, perhaps old patterns that we had that were useful for us as children that we no longer need, uh, helping reveal to us why we have this particular pattern. Why do we react a particular way when a particular word or person says something or or even the energetics of a person? Uh, sometimes you'll get a feeling like, you know what? I, there's something about that person really I don't like. I don't know what it is. But it's always about you. And uh, and so helping to discern what that's about and and help you re-educate yourself about that and how so that you can move on and uh and feel so, more comfortable yeah so these so you're saying you, you take a plant essence as opposed to the medicinal side where it's like you're trying to heal some physical ailment or something like that this is you're working again as you say with the energetics and you described almost like uh, talk therapy or, you know, the, the new world where everyone's exploring trauma and inner children. Well, and, it does. Yeah. It, and and, yeah. and they, so these essences are, you're saying they work on the, on the, those same levels. Yeah. They work really well. I mean, they work well with, you know, psychology, including Jungian psychology, because sometimes what they act as is catalysts uh, to perhaps, remind or remember you remember your dreams very often when i would do clinical work i would say keep a dream journal while you're taking this flower essence and then in the next discussion you know there might be one key word that opens up a whole envelope of memory you know like prost's uh uh you know smelling a a uh, cookie and all of a sudden he writes seven volumes of book about memories of his childhood um so they can be very useful and they and they really don't do any harm i mean 
basically they're just petals on water. There's no physical substance there. We're now talking about the energetics of it. Right. And so like compared to say cannabis or psilocybin or like alcohol, like these, you know, properties that, you know, we have real physical feelings in our body could, you know, say they're psychoactive and that sort of thing. Is is that the type of experience one would feel when kind of using plant essences? Well, you would certainly not get the uh, altered physiological kind of- They don't make you high, so to speak. No. But but psychologically, it gives your your it gives your spirit the opportunity to to look at what your pattern is, how it developed, and perhaps deal with it. For example, let's say you had a pattern that you developed as a young child, where you always deferred to your to your parents and whatever they said you believed, and blah blah blah. And as you got a little older, you're going. Well, really, mm, I don't know. And that pattern that may have developed may lead you down a pathway that isn't really fulfilling you, isn't creating happiness and joy in your life. And so it gives you an opportunity to think, is that me or is that my parents speaking, for example? And so the energetic of the flower essence allows people to re-examine uh, their past history and, uh, and move forward. Uh, sometimes people get stuck and they get in ruts with, this is the way I've always done it. This is always the way I've done it. And you know that, that doesn't allow you to move forward. Plant kingdom is solar, mycelium is underground. And the flower petal essence Sits in a bowl and makes no sound I met a rabbit once When no one was around So compared to other, the medicinal side of things where, you know, herbalists take make tinctures and make teas and all this sort of stuff, what is the process for making an essence? Yeah, so it's very simple. Uh, so uh, I've worked with uh, my wife with flower essences, and I've worked on my own with mushroom essences, and I'll explain the former first. So you basically go into the woods, you find a plant with flowers that, that you want to uh, explore, and then you take and you don't use anything except wood or sticks. I like to use chopsticks. You don't want anything metal. You don't want to cut them. So you pick off, you first of all, prepare a crystal bowl with water, spring water, pure water, uh, distilled if you have to. And then you layer the top with the petals of whatever flower you're working with. And it's and only the petals. You're only going for flowers here. No roots, well, no stems, well, no the, leaves. Uh, no leaves, but it, the flower could be the whole top of the flower too. It could be the not just the petals, but the actual uh, middle of the flower as well. And uh, and then you sit there with the plant for four hours, uh, discern what you can. At the end of the four hours, you take. I take the top. So this layer. is you kind of sitting, as I say, you're kind of you meditating. You're trying to connect again energetically. You're yeah. trying to listening and sort of like that initial story where where the elder had you sit and look at the plant. You're sort of in a, in a bit of a meditative state trying to connect. 
Yes, and try to remain as neutral as you possibly can. Very often, our heads get in the way when it comes to things like this. So, so you experience what's going on, and you may have insights. And I always take a little notebook, and I write down some key words. And then later on, uh, you finish preparing the essence, which would be removing the flowers from the top. But could I just back up a second? So you're saying when you're having experiences, would you, sitting in the woods here for your four hours with the with the crystal, next to the crystal bowl, are you having, say, those experiences yourself? Like you're, if, it, if this uh, flower helps to impact childhood memories, or are you feeling your own rush of that? Are you feeling these effects while it's happening? Sometimes. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Um, or I feel a joy or once sometimes I'm sitting there and for known, known reason to my conscious mind, I'll start to cry. Like, what was that about? And so there's some deep connection that is sometimes difficult to capture in words, uh, but preparing the essence and then taking it uh, can help to reveal more, especially when you go into dream work at night. I, I really like to encourage people to take flower essences before bedtime, simply because it unlocks, in some cases, your unconscious, which uh, is much smarter than your, than your ego brain. Now, do you find that the properties of the plant and what you experience during this process or relationship with the essences is unique to an individual, or does a certain flower have certain properties? Say, if you go in and, and do this with dandelion, as an example, would would people have a similar experience with the dandelion, or is it really unique and personal, depending on what happens? That's a great question. Um, I would say that uh, well-researched flower essences have had repeated patterns with different people. And uh, and so some of the more well-known ones, for example, the first person to really formalize this at all was a Dr. Edward Bach uh, in England about 100 years ago. And he uh, developed first initially uh, 12 flower essences and then later in his life, 38. And uh, those have been incredibly popularized around the world. Um, and they are for very specific reasons. For example, Aspen is uh, made from the aspen tree catkin, um, is uh, for fear of the uh, unknown, whereas a mimulus or the monkey flower is for fear of the unknown. And so, it, you know, there, so there's, uh, or fear of the known, sorry. So those are two examples of how flower essences could be very useful for individuals um, if there's a fear of something or other um, uh, that's in somebody's psyche, it probably is creating a, um, an inability to reach, you know, uh, a great deal of joy in life because there's always this trepidation. If I do this, what's going to happen? Or, you know, and, uh, and so those have been very popular. And now around the world, flower essences are produced and just about every continent except Antarctica, and uh, they're. So, is it possible? Is it necessary for me to make my own and have this experience of going out into the woods with my own crystal bowl and my four hours of meditation where I connect, or can I, you know, purchase them in the same way I could purchase herbal medicine and you know start the course of 
therapy using them from there? Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Bach, he was, a, he was an empath. He was a very sensitive individual and he was a medical doctor who could pretty well tell when people were sitting in front of him in his office on Harley Street um, that, that really what they didn't need surgery, what they really needed was the, uh, the, the shift in consciousness that was going on. And so what he did, for example, with Aspen, what he did was he deliberately put himself into that feeling, into that emotion. And then he went into the woods into the fields in Wales mainly. Um, and when that plant spoke to him to help him with that feeling that he was, exp uh, that he was creating within himself, then he knew he had the right remedy. And that basically exhausted him. That, I, he died not that old uh, and gave us the gift of these flower essences, but that took an immense emotional and physical toll on him to put himself into some of these grief states or, or other areas of anger, for example, or impatience. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's how he did it. That's not how I did it, but uh, that's how he did it. So now back to the, the question previously about the difference between plants and sort of mushroom, the mycelium world, is there a difference there in the essences? Like, is there some primary characteristics where like flower essences activate um, on certain levels of our psyche and mushrooms are different? Yes. Thank you. That's a great question. So I had a clinical practice, as I mentioned, for about 20 years and, uh, and I started producing, um, I was at a conference in the early 90s, and uh, there was a fellow from Netherlands came, and he had seven essences with him, six plant, six flower, and one mushroom. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I've never, you know, like, like that's pretty interesting. So I started to produce a few, and then I started, because I had the advantage of clinical practice, inviting some of my clients who I had had a good rapport with to check these out. And so over the next 26 years, I actually uh, started to uh, work with them. And then I wrote up with case studies, uh, these different kinds of uh, things. And, and finally, in about five years ago, uh, North Atlantic pub published a book called Mushroom Essences, the vibrational healing from kingdom fungi. Um, but basically, the, the difference is this, that that flowers uh, are produced in solar environment, full sun, uh, whereas mushrooms basically are more about the dark. They're around about the underground. They're about the shadow. And they're so, they are really uh, essences that help with shadow work, which is what Carl Jung would say is the part of us that we're not aware of. We're we don't know what we don't know, so to speak. And, uh, and so very often those are glazed over. And as Jung would remind us, if we don't deal with our shadow, it is the one thing that will devour us. If we're not willing to admit that we're capable of a certain thing, then we probably are. And we're repressing it and it's creating um, a uh, dysfunction within our system. That's fascinating. And, and, and as you're saying, flowers and would even 
generalized plants as well as being more attuned to solar energy. And and now we have this other side, the underground, the darkness, and, you know, the modern world of spirituality. It's very much about embracing your shadow and exploring your shadow work. You see that, that terminology come up again and again. So, uh, using or mushrooms in general, rather like using it as an essence, or if you just sort of ingest it, is it also working on that dimension within us of more of the shadow realm, the unknown stuff? Oh, that's a great question. I would say the analogy would be just like you use plants in their physical form for teas or tinctures, um, mushroom which are the fruiting body, the part that were vis are visual to us on trees or popping out of the ground. Those are actually used physically for, uh, for a lot of things, but mainly for reducing inflammation in our body on a physical level and for modulating our immune system, keeping our immune system optimal, whether it's over-ramped as in autoimmune conditions or underactive, uh, where it's not optimal in production of, you know, white blood cells, killer cells, et cetera. So that they physically uh, taken as a tea or double dual extraction, there's, there's compounds in many of the medicinal mushrooms, especially the ones that grow in trees, whether they're wildcrafted or they're grown in factories that have both water and alcohol soluble constituents that are valuable. And, uh, the water soluble are very valuable in that they modulate the immune system, whether it's over ramped as in autoimmune or if it's deficient as in underactive and bring it up to uh, normal levels so we can, can fight uh, different kinds of pathogens and things that are entering our bodies. So, yeah, so they are, you know, but those are generally from the fruiting bodies. Um, the actual mycelium is also grown in particular cases uh, and marketed in the U.S. and other places where they believe that's the living organism. And there's some degree of credibility to some levels of this where uh, that particular, even though it's a lot of starch and sugar in the grains they grow it on, that that living uh, mycelium also has some health benefits. So, yeah, okay, and just used. for for those listening that aren't totally aware of the physical biology of this, because we think of mushrooms as the thing, but you're saying just the fruiting body. They're like the apples or the berries, but there's the whole apple tree um, would be these really, if you could just maybe describe the world of mycelium biologically and how it exists out there in the world. We see mushrooms on top, but what's going on underneath? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's very interesting. I, I read a story one time, a, a fellow in Switzerland, he took a hectare of land and every year for 20 years, he recorded what mushrooms popped up, named them, and re recorded this. And every year was different. That is, the mycelium under the ground chose when it was optimal for it to spend the energy to produce this fruiting body, which is really the sexual reproductive part of the, of the mushroom, uh, to send spores into the air to continue the uh, propagation. And so 
mushrooms will produce that fruiting body when they want to. And but under the ground, they don't look like mushrooms. What? No, what, they what? look. They look like white little threads. If you ever kicked over a log, sometimes in the woods, and you'll see all this kind of web-like, you know, whitish kind of strands. That is mushroom mycelium, and that is the living organism. Yeah, and that is a network that is going on just underneath our forests, underneath just. Everywhere we have plant life, under there is mycelium that's sort of like a web that connects it all in some way. There are, within a square meter, there are probably hundreds of miles of mycelium looking like little strings. It's unbelievable. So I recently watched a documentary, a fantastic Fungi. Uh, great, great film. Great film. Um, little surface level. It didn't it doesn't go terribly deep. It kind of it's for the general public, yeah. and it's on Netflix. If anybody wants to check it out, uh, a, a lot of uh, interesting information. But it made a point about this mycelium and the just actual physical structure of it this almost a neurological network that's kind of going on underneath the forest is also a reason why the mushroom kingdom and those plants are also beneficial to our neurological network and also have these other properties psychotropic and otherwise that lead us off into other dimensions of consciousness and that sort of thing not all mushrooms but some and i just wondering if uh we could start with your thoughts in that direction well absolutely i mean there's a number of reasons i mean uh for example there is one fruiting body called lion's mane that actually has shown to have brain neuron growth factor and is often used and now is being combined uh, in some studies with psilocybin and niacin. Uh, and it's showing great potential for um, in microdosing levels, that is a tenth of what would be normally medicinal, um, uh, for, for helping people to regain uh, brain health, uh, to increase their ability to uh, uh, create more cells that will store more information and to think in more than a linear way to to bring together different concepts from different parts of the brain that actually help us to see things in a different manner. And so, yes, yeah, so uh, I love that film simply uh, all this time. I love the time lapse stuff, which is coming up. And, and then Paul, of course, he talks a little bit about how psilocybin helped him with his stuttering and things like that. And I think it's a great film to introduce people to, to mushrooms. And uh, I really liked it, yeah. So what are your thoughts of that connection then to, you know, you said you're, you're currently writing a book on, on psilocybin and you've done numerous books on just, uh, you know, fungal, you have the, you know, the tech almost, you know, a, a very concise volume, the fungal pharmacy. Um, and so what, Outside of, you, you described the uh, uh, immune system function that uh, mushrooms do. What are the other properties, say, related to our consciousness and how, 
you know, this particular yeah. kingdom of beings on the planet is very, helps us access expanded consciousness. It's quite a quality for, you know, a little plant friend that's out in the forest. Yeah, I know. No, it's very interesting. I mean, I uh, just finishing the book on psilocybin uh, uh, throughout history, uh, some parts of the world, India, uh, Algeria, before it was desert, and uh, Sweden and Greece, and uh, but, but basically Mesoamerica before the uh, Spanish and Cortez uh, uh, created genocide in in Mexico and other parts of Central America. Uh, the peoples there had ceremonial um, uh, celebration where the mushrooms were used for. Uh, as part of their whole consciousness as a civilization. And, you know, that particular uh, thing was buried for hundreds of years. Of course, the the Spanish uh, conquistadors and the Catholic Church didn't like people actually exploring their consciousness and their spirituality. They wanted them to be slaves to a religion. And so they, they basically buried that um, very much like similar to what happened to North American indigenous people too. But the mushrooms themselves were then rediscovered back in the, in the late uh, 1930s, early 40s, and then popularized. Uh, Gordon Wasson wrote an article in 1957 in Life magazine describing his experience with a, uh, uh, a Curandera uh, Maria uh, Sabina uh, in Mexico. And all of a sudden, whoa, uh, it was the cat was out of the bag there, so to speak. Um, and, and but uh, it's also it, was out of the bag, but then subsequently stuffed back in the bag over the next 20 years. And it's coming out of the bag again in full force now. But, uh, you know, those forces had to kind of play themselves out a little bit longer well, and still know, are. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Timothy Leary is popularizing, and and a number of people were. There was a, actually, you know, Hoffman who discovered uh, LSD twenty five. He also uh, found the uh, identified psilocybin in in the mushrooms out of Mexico. And Sandoz, who he worked for in Switzerland, they made a synthetic version, and that became available to researchers in the late sixties. Uh, for for finding out levels of help, helping people with depression, anxiety, schizoaffective disorders, things of that nature. In fact, some of the great work was done right uh, in Canada, in Saskatchewan, at Weyburn by Hoffman, um, Hoffer. And, uh, and so what happened was, you know, uh, Leary, uh, they made him into, you know, a dangerous man. And Nixon, of course, uh, you know, uh, convinced the United Nations to ban all hallucinogenic research. And it was shut down for about 35 years, 40, 25 years. And then in the late 90s, uh, 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 several people, the most credit I give to a fellow named Roland Griffiths at uh, John, Johns Hopkins, he and uh, Richards uh, applied and th through Johns Hopkins, DEA, FDA, it took them like three years to get approval to do the first clinical trial in the modern era. With, and this is in the States. This is in the US. States, in uh, Baltimore. 
to do that with uh, synthetic psilocybin. And it was done, it's interesting, one of the studies was done with 30 people who had stage four cancer. And they were suffering the existential stress and distress that you can imagine what that would feel like. And uh, uh, a year later, they sent out a questionnaire. And number one, all 30 were still alive, which is a miracle in itself. And number two, for 70% of them, it was the most significant single event in their life. That the journey with the psilocybin mushrooms, with the synthetic psilocybin, uh, put them most more in touch, gave them greater empathy, uh, helped uh, expand their consciousness, their awareness, and extinguished to some degree their fear of dying. And so that was the first study. And now there's about, since then, about 130 studies have been done using synthetic uh, psilocybin uh, for everything from post-traumatic stress, uh, obsessive compulsive, anxiety, treatment-resistant depression, you name it. And uh, in my book, I list about 100 and some of them are the more interesting studies. Now, the psilocybin, which has kind of been popularized, or you know, we many kind of are aware of that particular. What would you call it? Psilocybin, like the active ingredient? Is that what it be? Because it's not just one single mushroom called psilocybin. There's there's no. various various uh, strains. Correct. Yeah. The the best way to term it would be psilocybin containing mushrooms. And, and most of them are of the psilocybe or paniola species. I would say, you know, most of them. Um, and, and how many they, different species are you aware of that uh, have psilocybin? Over 200. Throughout the entire world or they only- Throughout the entire world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and m many of them in Mexico, I would say the largest number have been identified there. A Gaston Guzman, he- I alone, I think, identified about 70 of them. Uh, Paul Stamets, who name you recognize, he also is co-author for a number of them. John Allen. Uh, there's a number of people who were involved in the original identification. But the thing is, psilocybin and psilocin are found in most of the mushrooms. Psilocybin is converted in the gut into psilocin, which is actually the active ingredient that then has influence on our serotonin uh, receptors. So uh, the uh, psilocin is not very stable. So psilocybin going in, get that little tummy kind of thing, and then the psilocin is what the active ingredient. Yeah. When your neuropathways Start rebuilding what was lost And you just microdose some mushrooms Now you have a meeting with your boss Turn off your Zoom screen Just go play lacrosse Okay, so psilocybin is an active ingredient that has all consciousness uh, properties that are kind of medicinal. But previously you had mentioned some other ones like lion's mane um, that are also helpful kind of on brain function or neurological sort of function. Um, 
without being sort of like psychoactive in the same way that psilocybin is. So right. do you think that there's um, a quality to this, the psychoactive um, qualities of psilocybin that give it like a little bit more punch, a little bit more zest or doing something a little bit more, say, than a lion's mane is? Um, yes. Yeah. The, cel- the psilocin uh, has a direct influence on our serotonin uh, receptors, which really involve are basically our, our uh, experiences of, of comfort and joy, so to speak. That is, serotonin actually is the feel-good um, molecule. And so the fact that it has a direct influence on that receptor is, is significant. Yeah. And, and there's one of my chapters in, in the book on, uh, it's called, uh, um, psilocybin, you know, the, uh, one of the chapters involves the chemistry, uh, for those who are interested and how it does affect the brain and what they know to this point. But basically bottom line is it appears to create, they thought initially that psilocybin would create a circus in our head, you know, because people would get these visual colors and what they called hallucinations, which really aren't. But um, what they found is that psilocybin actually stills the mind. It's almost like, like we experienced earlier, when your computer's not working, you shut it down and it restarts. And whatever glitch was happening, it fixes that. And so that default mode in the brain that it activates really helps people to reset and rethink, refeel about past experiences. And that's why it's so powerful for post-traumatic stress that you actually, instead of people getting that repeated pattern, they actually have the ability to reset their experience. Now, you said previously that these mushrooms exist everywhere in the world. So they have, you know, they're a, they're a, they're a basic part of nature, so to speak, that, you know, here we are, these humans walking yeah. around on the surface of this planet all over the world and all over the place since the dawn of time, these psilocybin mushrooms have, have been part of our experience or they've at least been there. So what, what do you see as kind of that relationship on, yeah, any sort of like deeper level earth energy, that sort of thing, what it's trying to teach us, where it's trying to direct us as a species or consciousness? Well, that's a great question. I, 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 I give, this is not original thought. It's certainly credited to uh, Terrence McKenna, who wrote uh, Food of the Gods. Um, and uh, he uh, popular, he and his brother, uh, Dennis, they popularized uh, the growing of psilocybin after experiences in South America. Uh, I believe, as he suggests, that psilocybin is here to save the planet. It's to save humans. And the fact that we're attracted to them and we now grow and spread them around the world um, uh, as they're becoming more popular and ingested more and and they're spreading like spores like a mushroom, uh, that they're actually here to connect us more with with nature and make us understand we are nature we're all part of nature and and to get rid of this separate autocratic kind of uh um technocratic uh, approach to uh basically 
thinking there's only value in the tree if you can cut it down and make money. I mean, that, that consciousness has got to change. And, uh, and so I think that's what they're part of. It does seem like uh, many people who have initial experiences. I remember my first experiences sitting in high school health class, uh, you know, where they say, don't do drugs, drugs are bad. And they showed us these films about Johnny does acid and, you know, that sort of thing and how it just like, you know, ended up in a sane asylum or he jumped out a window or something like that. And I remember we would go out on the weekend and do mushrooms and acid and just go, fuck, no, it's not like that at all. Like, yeah, you didn't you know, believe and it all. almost had this opposite effect on mm -hmm. us and myself going like, oh, this system is somehow what's messed up. Like if you guys are sitting there this big building that you make us go to as kids and this education and you're telling us this is bad but i went out and had my own experience and it was like no that really expanded something in me and saturday morning i was a different person and it was positive and uh yeah it, it my own self like made me go well you guys are the ones that are fucked not not these plants or these substances well it's why you're sitting where you are today i mean you're you know i've known you for a few years and the work you do is helping people connect with their with their soul like level at with plants or mushrooms or whatever and you've been doing that work of communication for a long time and it probably led you to wanting to share that and uh and so i think as more and more people connect even even if it is on very popularized, like it's millions of young people doing microdosing because you can imagine young, uh, uh, young 20 year olds, like they look at what's going on in the world with climate change and, and the, uh, the corruptness of, uh, of, uh, uh, of our political systems and just the economic disadvantage they're experiencing. I guess they're anxious and depressed. And so I really believe that, uh, the future will, will show that this mushroom really will make a difference to the planet. What do you see as the future now going forward as say this information's out there? It's, um, I think my understanding is it's been decriminalized, at least in, you know, certain states of uh, America. I don't know what's going to happen in Canada or what the, what the future is there. Um, but what are you seeing as sort of the use of this substance going forward? Like, pharmacologically, um, you know, health benefits and that sort of thing. Is it going to gain yeah. awareness in popular culture and start to spread like the spores, as you were saying? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, these, uh, these uh, double-blind placebo-controlled trials that have been going on for the last dozen years now uh, have led to, for example, Oregon. Oregon, uh, people voted there and uh, by by next year, the legislators have got to figure out a way that makes it legal for people to consume the mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, in the presence of a qualified psychologist or health professional. And I think, I think there's some importance there because, uh, as many people have said, uh, the, the idea of set and setting of when you take psilocybin is important with regards to helping ensure that you get a favorable journey, but you also get a impactful uh, uh, benefit that is long lasting. And, uh, and 
And so I, I think that's going to happen. And in fact, California, they just a month ago, the California Psilocybin Initiative, they're, they're going for a plebiscite in 2022 that by 20, early 2023, if it passes, it's going to make legal uh, psilocybin legal for both recreational and medicinal. That is a whole can of worms too. That, but but the reality is it's happening. And and uh, in Canada, um, there are now thirty some people who have been given exemption to grow their own mushrooms to consume uh, for people suffering from uh, existential distress associated with cancer. And uh, more and more of that's going to be happening. In fact, Therosil, a company out of Vancouver. Uh, they're pushing the government under the constitution, uh, just like cannabis was 10 years ago, that people have the right to ingest um, uh, natural substances for their own health, health and well-being. So I'm, pro I th I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that things are going to move forward and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And in fact, I'm involved with a company right now out of Edmonton that are going to start human clinical trials uh, with this particular um, uh, substance starting in the first quarter of 2022. So yeah, very hopeful. Now on the flip side of, you know, we're, we're at this age of, you know, embracing things like, you know, look what's happened with cannabis in the last 10, 20 years where it kind of went for this fringe substance. Now cannabis and CBD, it's like the wonder drug. It's good for freaking everything, you know, whether it's true or not, but there's, you know, there's promotion. It's like, it's, this has got oh, yeah. foot pain. You know, you don't like your boss at work. It's like CBD, that's the thing for you. So if we're going perhaps in the same direction with psilocybin and microdosing is really popular, as you say, there's everything from real scientific clinical tests going on in the, the medical community. Um, it's also can be really powerful. Like, you know, you like, damn, you like these things, it's can really take you to other dimensions, some yeah. even say, right? So, and can have a very, very strong psychoactive and physical effect. So are there in your mind also any risks? As you had mentioned before, it's good to maybe have these things go down in a clinical environment. Um, if you're going to really use it for therapeutic reasons to do it with a, you know, a professional, someone who's experienced in that way. So what do you, what do you see sort of that zone there of like, is there any kind of adverse effects that psilocybin could be Absolutely. having on people? Yeah, I, I, I do believe. I mean, it's already recorded. They, for example, will not, there's a, a, a very quick cortisol rush in our body and immediately after ingesting that pro, uh, prohibits uh, people with uh, hypertension from taking part in clinical trials. So people with high blood pressure, which is a quite a number of people in the society, right? Um, so they, that, Care must be used with those individuals. Anybody with schizoaffective uh, genetic um, background, probably not a good idea. Probably shouldn't be used by anybody in uh, under 21, really. I mean, it, 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 there's there are a number of reasons for that. Also with epilepsy. And so in my book, I talk about a number of the contraindications for who should probably not be involved in this. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. It isn't just a like, go for it, wonder drug, come one, come all sort of thing. No, it's, it's sort of like, and I, I also think, I remember studying with shaman in Peru and back in the early eighties. And, uh, you know, I'd, I asked them like, you know, like number one, my first question was like, how did, how did you know to put these two of millions of plants? How did you know to put these two together to get ayahuasca mixture that actually has this profound effect on people? And, and the law, they would often say, well, the plants told us going back to our wisdom of the plants earlier. But the uh, second thing is why would some people need this and other people not? And they, and they would reply in probably a poor um, translation, but they would say, well, some people are thicker than others. That is, in order to break open that little level of consciousness, which allows you to see more of what's going on around us, sometimes you need a little bit of a, a kickstart. And not everybody needs that. So on that level, you're saying that these plants, these mushrooms are here to help us and then and the take us to this into the future. You know, they're they're healing us on a consciousness level. And what do you see as kind of like the consciousness healing that needs to take place for us as well as, you know, physical healing? Yeah. Well, I, I really believe that um, we are at a crisis point on the planet. Uh, it's a fairly populated place. There's a lot of environmental, ecological destruction going on. There's a lot of things that are, you know, economically, politically, socially, you know, we need some serious readdressing. And I believe that looking at the studies, people who have experienced psilocybin they have a shift of consciousness towards more empathy and more awareness of their surroundings and want to take care of the planet. And I think that that is our great hope for the future. I remember reading uh, something about the LSD trials of the 50s that were going on in Saskatchewan, and there was a description of, uh, you know, people like having an experience with like seeing a tree for the very first time, you know, like where we, we get into patterns and habits with, wow, we address the world. And, you know, we get out of our house in the morning when we're on our way to work and we go, oh, there's this tree in my front yard. And we go, it's a tree. Yeah, I know it's a tree. And you get in our car and we go off to work, but sort of these substances and like it was LSD in particular was like, people would be like, oh my Freaking God, this is a tree. Look, this is the most magical, amazing, wonderful thing I've ever seen, you know, and, and rightfully so. Like on some level, we should get blown away every time we see a tree because of its beauty, like what an amazing life form it is. But if we do that, we don't get in the car and go to work, so to speak, because no. we just spend four hours on our front lawn looking at leaves if we are in that state of consciousness. So you have and any we thoughts? Also, yeah. And I would say we also don't get in our truck with our chainsaw and go down into the forest and cut a bunch of trees down that, you know, for making uh, money. And so I think there is a great need for a shift of consciousness. 
Absolutely. And so um, you said you've done this research. You got uh, uh, the book coming out soon. When could we expect um, more from your wide uh, library of, of titles that you say 57 to date? Will the psilocybin book be number 58? Yeah, it will be 58. Yeah, it's called uh, um, psilocybin, the magic, the science and research. And so uh, um, it's, uh, it, it's been fun. It's been uh, uh, it's something I wanted to do for a while and finally got around to it. And I think people will uh, uh, enjoy it, will appreciate it. I go through all the history going way back and like what is a mushroom for even for people who don't know that. And then all the trials and the people involved, the personalities that were involved, like some of the great stories of, you know, Timothy Leary and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dennis, uh, Terrence McKenna and et cetera, and John W. Allen. Uh, and, and, and then look at each of the mushrooms. I look at about uh, the top 50 uh, of uh, what their contents are for people of interest and where, how they've been used traditionally. And then a little bit about the, uh, the truffle trade in Netherlands. Uh, in the Netherlands, they're not allowed to sell the fruiting body, but through a kind of a quirk of law, they're able to sell the little sclerotia or the little mycelium that grows underground. And uh, you get about the same dosage as a microdose and so that's very that's a billion dollar industry in in Holland right now, and uh, yeah, so those things are happening. And when do you expect this book to be available for the general public? This book should be available on Amazon within the next two weeks. Wow. Okay. And and its title again? Uh, psilocybin, the uh, the magic. Science and research. Psilocybin okay. mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Psilocybin mushrooms. The science, the magic, the science and research. Yeah. And how can people connect with the 57 other books that you have written? Uh, well, there's, yeah, thank you. Well, we do have a website. Uh, my wife works very hard at, at has created a, an e-store for us. And our address is www self s-e-l-f heal h-e-a-l distributing that's all one word selfhealdistributing.com and they can find uh my 50 some books and my wife has seven as well that are a very interesting uh associated with uh goddess work uh, aromatherapy and and different delving into different things such as uh, flower essences and so those all those uh Books are available there and you can look them up. Wonderful. Robert, it's, uh, as you say, 58 books. That's a lot. That's a, that's a big contribution to our understanding. So, you know, thanks on behalf of uh, my fellow humans for doing that work that you've been doing your yeah. whole life and uh, look forward to the book. And uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us here today. That was uh very enlightening into the world of mycelium and consciousness and beyond. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I've always enjoyed your company. I loved filming with you a few years back and with Bev in the Yukon, in Yukon. 
and uh, and thanks very much for this. When government and big pharma stop telling us the pills we get to take, and lion's mane and reishi mushrooms are in my McDonald's shake, I'll face my darkness. Unless, of course, I need a break. Then I'll just make myself a steak A portobello mushroom steak Portobello mushroom steak Portobello mushroom steak Yeah, man. Whoa. Groovy, baby. If you didn't guess it already, my thanks to Jefferson Airplane and their tune White Rabbit for the musical inspiration of the Mushroom episode. Um, Likely it was just that one line in the song that I kind of picked up on and played with. And lo and behold, there we have. Thanks, Jefferson Airplane. That early stuff you did was super dope. The stuff you did later, like I built this city on rock and roll. Oh, my God. We need to wipe that from the collective consciousness. But the mid-70s was kind of weird all around, like everywhere. Thank God the Ramones showed up. Whoa, Sex Pistols. It was like, it was getting out of control. It was like, something needs to be done. So thanks to them. And thanks to Robert Rogers, um, his wisdom, the years of experience he has. Uh, Again, um, check out his new book on psilocybin. Um, All the links are in the info uh, for this episode um, where you can get the book. You can go to his website, Amazon, anywhere you like, pick up that book. So grateful to have had Robert on the show. If you'd like to connect, it's always great to hear from you. Let me know what's working, any ideas you have for the show, anything. Hey, is anybody you want me to talk to? I'm happy to listen to some suggestions. McNuttiest.com is my website. Lots of ways to connect with me there. Um, McNuttiest on Facebook, McNuttiest on Instagram, McNuttiest on Twitter, but I never go there because that's just a freaking hornet's nest, people. Um, but fun one for lots of people. Lots of shit gets thrown around there, but don't try me on Twitter. You want to send me an email, yo, 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 at McNuttiest.com is all you need to know. Thanks for tuning in, people, and spending some time in the McNuttiest dimension. I'm Chris McNutt, and we'll catch you next time. We're